No success in the world can compensate for failure in the home. That's why Club Wealth was founded, to help driven, successful, and busy real estate agents like you double their business while building a strong, balanced home life. Join us each week as high-producing agents and team leaders share their stories and unpack the principles and systems they've used to double, triple, and even quadruple their business while enjoying greater quality of life. And now, here's the latest episode of Club Wealth TV. Welcome, everybody. My name is Michael Ellingson with Club Wealth Coaching and Consulting. And uh, as you know, I'm one of the coaches here at Club Wealth. And uh, very happy to be with you today. I am joined on Club Wealth TV today by my co-hosts, Mr. Brian Curtis, who's also one of our Club Wealth coaches. Brian is a rock star. And by Sheree Benjamin, Coach Sheree Benjamin. Both Brian and Sheree are rock star coaches at Club Wealth. They both coach tiers four and higher. And uh, there's a reason for it, because they're ballers. And so we're super excited today to bring to you something that has not happened in a while. Uh, we've been getting some questions about, you know, all right, Michael, we keep hearing that, you know, you've listed and sold over a hundred homes per month, yada, 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 whoopty freaking do like that sounds all great and fine and good, but, uh, you know, and it's all awesome, you know, 750 listings at one time and active and pending status, whoopty do. What, what does that mean? How did you get there? All that kind of stuff. And so what we thought was today, we just give Brian and Sheree a chance to grill me, put me in the hot seat, get, make me uncomfortable, dig deep. Let's find out not only how did our team accomplish that, but more importantly, how can our viewers' teams accomplish that? So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Brian and Sheree. Brian, can we cue the uncomfortable music? Where's our hot seat music? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right, I'll go first. So I was told that I get to go first uh, this morning. So I I'm going to ask you a little, it's, it won't be a hard one, but I think it's an important one because to me, everything focuses on basically three things. Focuses on your physiology, what you're physically doing with yourself at any given point in time. It focuses on your language, what you're talking about to yourself. And then it focuses on your focus or your beliefs. So I want to know what somebody has to believe to sell a hundred houses a month, because here's the thing we, we can copy your activities, but activities mm -hmm. are one thing. What, what's a belief of somebody who sells a hundred houses a month? Okay. So, all right. So first of all, I've got these written down. You said physiology beliefs. And what was the third one? Your language, what you're saying to, your to yourself. So, you know, you we'll just call that the triad for the lack of a better way to put it. I love it. These are great. I've, I've actually, nobody's ever asked me this before. So I actually love it. Okay. So, Beliefs. What do you have to believe? Well, I mean, I think the first thing that's obvious is you got to believe that you can do it, right? I mean, you've got to actually believe that you can do whatever it is you set out to do. And, and what is uh, Napoleon Hill said that whatever the mind can believe and achieve, or, and, and, no, sorry, whatever the mind can conceive and believe it can achieve, right? So first you got to think about, okay, what what's possible? Like what, what can happen? And then I've got to believe that I actually can do that thing. Uh, and so for me, you know, it was, okay, I didn't start off saying, I believe I can do a thousand units a year. I started off, yeah, I mean, it definitely did not start off there. It started off thinking, okay, I've heard some people make $100,000 a year selling real estate. Maybe I can do that too. 
right? So I started to convince myself that it was possible to do 100,000 a year, then that it was actually possible for me to do 100,000 a year. Um, and that was, it's, it's funny, it took me, I was in high school when I finally determined this for myself, when I finally believed that I could do it. Uh, but it took, and it's, I hate to even say this, it's embarrassing, but, but it's, it's the truth for most of us, I think. I actually had to meet somebody that was doing that level of production. Um, and it, it was weird because I, there wasn't a lot of people doing that around me anyway, at least not in my office. I know there were other people in the marketplace doing that, but I had no idea who they were or that they even existed. All I knew is there was one guy in my office that was this most arrogant person I've ever met. And the guy was constantly telling me how, oh, well, I do $125,000 a year. I'm a big deal. <laughs> you know, like today I'd be like, really? Wow. Like, good for you, dude. Like, that's a good week. Um, but that guy was like all enamored with himself because he was doing $100,000 a year and walking around the office like the big man on campus. And here I was, this high schooler trying to figure my way out in real estate. And finally, I'd be like, dude, if that guy, and I almost used a bad word, but if that knucklehead can do this, I can freaking do this. And from that day forward, I knew I was going to do at least a hundred thousand a year. And, it, and then once I got to that level, I did the same thing, you know, with $250,000 a year, then it was $500,000 a year, then it was a million dollars a year. Um, and over time I started to really to believe that, Hey, I can do a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, I can really take this to as far as I want to take it. And, it's, and the first time I broke a million dollars in GCI was where my mind really expanded. And I really started to believe that, Hey, wait a minute. If I can do a million dollars a year, maybe I can do $5 million a year. Maybe I can do $10 million a year. Who knows what's possible? And it's funny because it's just like with Roger Bannister, right? Roger Bannister was the first guy to break the four-minute mile. Everybody previous to Roger Bannister thought that if you broke the four-minute mile, your heart would literally explode by breaking the four-minute mile. And Roger Bannister does it, and all of a sudden the next year, and I can't remember the exact number, but it was like 20. Was it 59? Is that what it was? Like 59 people the very next year broke the five minute or the, excuse me, the four minute mile. And guess what? Nobody's heart exploded. Nobody. Everybody lived to tell about it later. I mean, and so it's just like, dude, the problem that most agents have is right here. It's what's in your own mind. You guys got to get past it yourself. I love it. You know, I posted recently in the Facebook group, I, you know, that I'm struggling to understand why anybody would want to be uh, a solo agent. And I got some pretty interesting responses. And, and frankly, some of them were not all that friendly. Some of them were like, you know, well, you know, why would I want to be a team and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, dude, here's what I really think. I really think that the big problem is it's up here. I think people don't believe that they're good enough to have a team. I think people don't believe they're smart enough to have a team. I feel like they believe that, you know, to have a team is much is, is more work. It's less profitable, whatever. And here's the reason why I think these people believe it. Because they've never done it right to begin with, and they've only experienced people doing it wrong, and so therefore that becomes their belief and their mindset. So I guess if you want to change that mindset, stop hanging around with idiots. Stop hanging around with morons that only think negative things about building a real business and start hanging out with people that make the kind of money you want to make and that are building a real business, and that will change your mindset. All right. So I got a question for you. Why Club Wealth? <laughs> why why did we build it yep why club wealth right <laughs> like what that's not big make make yeah. i don't know what's why what prompted you to do to build found club wealth well it's interesting because club wealth didn't start off as a real estate agent coaching company 
Clubwell started off as when I was a real estate agent, I wanted to have an entity that I could use to teach people how to invest in real estate. So I was teaching essentially potential clients of mine how to go out and buy and hold some rental properties so that they can build wealth for themselves, thus club wealth, right? And, and then during that process somewhere, you know, it worked really well, by the way, um, and got a lot of people to do business with us. And that's a great model for those of you who are looking for ways to work with investors. Uh, that really, really worked well for us. But essentially, uh, over time, I started getting questions for people saying, hey, um, you know, I would like to have you teach me how to sell real estate at a higher level like you're doing. And that's kind of the, that was the impetus for starting Club Wealth. Uh, but then we took a sabbatical, right? In 2011, uh, you know, I sold the company and took a sabbatical and it was going to be a year. It turned out to be three and a half years. And I started getting calls from uh, a lot of our past clients, like Jesse Zagorski and others that had done business with us saying, hey, we want you to get back in the business. And about that time, I get a call from Brian Curtis saying, hey, by the way, uh, I want you to coach our team. I'm like, well, I'm really kind of not really doing that right now. Is he like, no, you don't understand. Like, you're going to coach my team. <laughs> He's like, I've talked to several people. They tell me that you're the guy that I need to talk to. You're going to coach my team. I'm like, um, okay. And so we got going again. But when we did it, uh, and it wasn't quite that simple. There's a lot of thought and prayer and, and, and debate and discussion with Tara about whether or not this was the right thing for us. But what it really came down to was, as 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 well as we did in real estate, I really feel like we were born for coaching. I, I feel like that's what I was put here on this planet to do. I don't feel like I was put here on this planet to sell a whole bunch of houses. Um, and um, I get more joy in my life out of being coached than I do out of selling real estate. So that's why. Okay. That's an awesome answer. So I want to go back to something real quick. I'm going to ask you the flip side of my original question. Okay. When you made less than $100,000, what did you believe? Oh man. Okay. So somebody, let me ask a better question. What were some of your limiting beliefs? Cause I think that's more important, not the things that pushed you over the top, but what were the things that kept you here until you said, Oh crap, that's BS. And, and, and you got here. Well, I think the first place to start with that is what caused a lot of my limiting beliefs. And I'll tell you a lot of it was my folks and don't get me wrong. I love my parents. I'm, I've got wonderful parents. They've done everything they could to give me the best life that they could. They've really worked hard to help me have a better life, to teach me to be great parents. And they have. That being said, there was a period of about 10 months where I didn't speak to my parents. And I'll tell you why. Because at the, at the beginning of that, toward, you know, when I first got into real estate, um, yeah, I was the number one listing agent in my market, or in my, uh, in my office, rather, not my market, just my office. Uh, and all that really meant was I was less broke than the other agents in the office, right? Sure. Uh, and so I had all these 40-year-old-plus ladies and men in the office that were all mad at me because I was out listing houses at 8 and 10% because I didn't know any better. But here's the thing. I was still freaking broke. And my parents kept telling me, they're like, look, you should go get a real job. Go, go get a job at McDonald's. You'd make more money. And what was, what was sad was they were right. right? <laughs> I mean, no joke. Like I literally would have made more money had I gone and gotten a job at the drive-thru through learning great scripts. Like, you know, would you like to supersize that? Right. It's only working 40 <laughs> hours a week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, I mean, that was, you know, for me, that was a, a big deal. Um, and I just, I, I'll tell you what really drove me. It wasn't even the hope for gain. It was, I'll be darned if you're going to tell me I can't do something. I'll be darned if you're going to tell me I can't accomplish something that I think I can accomplish. And just to piss them off and just to prove them wrong, I, I decided, screw this. I'm going to go be successful with this. 
Now, there was more to it than that. Like as a kid, when I was 12 years old, my parents got a divorce. And so you talk about your big reason why. Well, when my parents got divorced, I was playing soccer. Again, I was 12 years old. I played on a team uh, that was a really good team locally. And I got noticed by a team that traveled all over the world. And at 12 years old, they wanted me to play on this team that was a 14 to 16-year-old team. And they wanted me to start as their center forward. So I was obviously not in the condition then that I am now, right? Um, And my parents couldn't afford the cleats, let alone the travel. And so I wasn't able to play. And I'll tell you what, I was heartbroken as a kid because I really loved playing soccer. And I said to myself in that moment, I said, you know what? No matter what, my kids are never going to have to make the decision between doing what they love or, or doing what they can afford to do. Uh, I want to make sure that my kids have the option to do whatever it is that their heart desires and money's never going to be the obstacle. Um, and so that combined with my parents telling me, no, you can't do it. Go get a John McDonald's was really um, my catalyst for developing a, a belief that I can do it. And that, you know, it's funny. I had another, the other one was a title guy that, um, that told me literally, if you can do a hundred thousand, this was his exact words. Uh, and I don't even think he's in the business today. Shocker. Um, but he said to me, he says, you know, if you can do a hundred thousand dollars a year selling real estate, I'll go downtown Seattle and I'll stand in the Macy's window and I'll bend over. I'll pull my pants down and I'll kiss my own rear end. And man, I'll tell you what, man, that guy was so rude to me in that moment. And so arrogant. It just, again, was a part of that driver for look, screw you. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go be successful in spite of you. So you've got that sign in the back and it goes to everyone that joins coaching. Where did it come from for you? (laughs) You are talking about this one right here. It says no success in the world can compensate for failure in the home. Um, Well, first of all, it actually is a quote from a guy named David O. McKay, um, who's a Mormon guy. And uh, the reason I don't quote him on this, because I don't think he would care. First of all, I think that he cares more that people hear the message than where it came from. And I think that if people were to see, oh, some Mormon guy said that, they would discount it as less important in their lives. Um, But I will tell you this, I don't care whether someone's religious or not, what religion they are, none of that matters. What matters is, do you believe it? And I do. And I'll tell you that there was a time in my life, uh, and it was when I was in high production prior to really getting to the top, uh, when, when we were on that way up to the top, I forgot about this. And I did not treat my family the way I should. And I had some challenges with just my behavior toward my family and, and becoming more interested in the business than I was in my family. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be actively engaged in your business. I'm just saying that I would... I would be with my family and all I was thinking about was work or I'd be with my family and I was constantly doing work um, or I just wouldn't be with my family at all because it was more fun to go do work, uh, you know, than change diapers or whatever it was that needed to be done with the kids at that point in time. Uh, And that becomes, the world becomes very, very appealing because at work I was getting all these accolades and people are like, oh my gosh, you're the man, look how great you're doing. And it's, oh, Michael's a rock star. And then I'd come home and Tara's like, dude, you're not all that, you're just Michael. Like, what's your issue? Like, freaking, (laughs) you know, go do the dishes, take the laundry down or, you know, go take the garbage out or something. Like, that wasn't giving me the kind of fulfillment that the business was giving me. And so it became very attractive to focus more on the business. Um, and I'll tell you that I don't believe that's where true happiness really comes. I think true happiness really comes from 
the family and for the things that need to happen in your home. And the business is there to provide you with the opportunities that you get to have. And I'm like, you know, I, I, when you go on vacation as a family, where does that money come from, right? It comes from the business. When you have a roof over your head, when you have food, all those things are important. But guess what? Your kids would rather spend more time with you than, to, than go to Hawaii with you. I, I mean, that's just my personal belief. So uh, I think it's really important. And that became the core value at Club Wealth that, we really have to focus on what's important, not what's interesting today. And so, Stan, oh, sorry. No, so Sandy Stice asks a question. As the number one successful real estate team in the country and now as the number one real estate coaching company in the team space, how do you adjust your mindset and deal with the quote-unquote haters or people who want to see you fail? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I used to let it get to me in a big way. I, I'll give you an example. In 2007, we picked a fight with our state department of licensing, right? If you're in California, it's like the BRE or whatever. So we sued them. They were breaking the law and we sued them. I was very arrogant, very idealistic. And I love to do this, right? Like if I see something that's not right, by golly, I'm going to go take care of it. I'm going to fix it. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a lot like when, you know, you have you ever seen that video with the woman with the nail in her forehead, right? It's actually a hilarious video. You should watch it. Great video. It is, right? Like, all I wanted to do is address the nail. It's like, she just wants to be listened to, right? Well, when I see somebody doing wrong, I want it fixed. It frustrates me. And I had to learn the hard way that you can be right or you can be rich. Uh, and you got to pick one. Well, Back in 2007, I chose to be right, and I sued our State Department of Licensing, and I beat them. And let me tell you, that was the beginning of the end of my real estate career, because all I did was manage to poke a sleeping bull, man. And let me tell you, I got the horns in the end, literally. Like, these guys were not messing around, and they spent three years trying to find a way to get me out of the business legally. And when that failed, when, they, when we beat them in court every single time, what did they do? They just freaked, got us to a point where we realized, look, we're either going to run out of money, or I'm going to have a heart attack. Either way, I can't keep doing this. And so Tara and I discussed, you know, getting out of the business. Well, in that process and during the time from 2008 to 2009, where our business went from about 400 deals a year to over 100 transactions a month, well over 100 transactions a month, we delivered terrible customer service to the agents in our market. We pissed everybody off. I mean, literally, our attitude toward agents was that they were an annoyance because they would ask, they would call and ask stupid questions like, you know, is it still for sale? Well, what's it say in the multiple? You know, or what's the price on that one? Well, what's the MLS say? Or how do I write an offer? Well, the instructions are in the listing, right? It's like, literally, we had a full and a half time position devoted to nothing but answering stupid agent questions all day long. And here's the problem, because I kept saying the words, stupid agent questions, guess what my team started to say? Stupid agent. All they heard from me was stupid agent all day long. And all they did was treat agents out there like stupid agents when we should have been treating them like clients. And we didn't do that. So deservedly so, we got a terrible reputation in our market. Uh, and recently, we, uh, we had uh, an event that we're actually promoting here in the Seattle market. I just thought, you know, it's been a long time since we've done anything for the agents here. Maybe we can put a few agents in a room together, do an event, and bring them some value. Oh, my gosh, man. My team's been calling agents in Seattle. Anybody that was here back in that period of time, they all freaking hate me. I mean, it's funny because when we went through that fight, you know, there was a lot of negativity. A lot of agents would post really negative things about me. And the, the kicker was 
they would post negative things about my wife, whom I knew they'd never met. They'd never met me either or spoken with me, but they would post negative things about my wife, about her physique, about her, about things about her that had zero to do with real estate. And I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding me? Did that really just come out of this person's mouth? And it began to break my heart because of what it was doing to her. Well, then fast forward to now. And by the way, my way of dealing with it then was guess what? More of this, right? I got frustrated. I got angry. I, you know, I'm like, you're a jerk. Why would you say that? And today my approach is completely different. So today, as our team is making these calls, they're getting some of this feedback. And, and, you know, there's some agents here that, you know, the big, especially the bigger producers, they're like, oh, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I saw that. I witnessed that. I actually reviewed that. I went through it. I understand what happened. Um, and they're pretty cool with everything. But, you know, the agents that research it are. But what's interesting is there's still a lot of haters out there. So today, the way we deal with those haters is we just don't worry about it. At the end of the day, there's always going to be haters. And it's interesting because I never try and defend myself with the haters now. I've just gotten to a point where I'm just like, you go ahead and hate. But what's cool is we've got so many wonderful clients and friends through Club Wealth that they go in there and they defend. Man, this gal that we were doing this event and this one gal got on there and she started being like, oh, this guy lost his license and you're an idiot if you follow him and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, like 20 people just jumped on her. Like, I felt bad for this gal, legitimately. Like, I felt like this gal's about to get lynched in the alleyway. Uh, and they're just like, you have no idea who you're talking about. These are the best people in the world. And we've, they've helped us tremendously. And they're great family people. And they're honest and all this other stuff. And uh, we just didn't say a word. So that's how I'd handle it differently today. Yeah, so it's always people People remember how you make them feel. So those stupid agent comments and all of that, people always remember how you made them feel. That's right. I want to I go backwards just a little bit because we've heard some of this story, some of your story before. A lot of us know that. But a couple of questions for you. What age did you break 1 million? Ooh, I don't know when that was first. It would have been around, I don't know how old I was. I mean, I know you're 60. Now, oh, wow. Wow. Did Tara put you up to that? That was awesome. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and this, I know there's some gray hair coming in here. Uh, okay. So yeah, it's, it's from you guys, by the way, it's from the two yeah. of you. By the way, I'm officially the oldest guy on this call. Yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let's see, it started off. Um, I was about, I think the first year I broke a million in GCI would have been, Man, that's a good question. I'm going to say it probably wasn't until early 2000s. Um, the first year that we broke, the year that we started consistently doing 100 deals a month was about 2008. Uh, okay, so that was as a team, not as an individual agent. Oh, yeah. I mean, 100 transactions a month as an individual agent. I don't even know that that's even possible. Okay. What? At what point did you decide that, it's time to form a team and there's two parts to that question. And were you afraid of it? What's that? What were yes, you scared? I was afraid of it. Yeah. Um, so it was my first, at the, it depends on what you define as a team. So hiring an assistant was my first major hurdle, right? Uh, and that my first assistant happened to be Tara. Uh, and uh, I always tell people like the, I had a coach back then, right? So my first two years in the business, didn't have a coach struggled working hundred hours a week, really struggling. Then I hired Mike Ferry. Uh, you guys all, everybody knows Mike. Um, and a great coach, right? Taught me how to pick up the phone, taught me how to prospect and how to, you know, dial for dollars and really did a good job of helping me understand that. Um, and that made a huge difference in my career. 
One of the other things that Mike taught me that was very valuable for me was the importance of having an assistant. Uh, in fact, I credit him for the first time. I, I think he's the one that first coined the phrase, if you don't have an assistant, you are one, right? And, um, and I got to tell you, I, I believe it. And so I hired an assistant when I got back from my mission. I hired Tara. Uh, you know, this is essentially how I met Tara. Uh, and uh, Ooh, a little funny business going on, huh? I'm telling you, she worked for me for about four years. That's when I went, you know, that's when we got married and I went to work for her, right? So uh, you guys know, I always tell people, any man that says he wears the pants in the family probably lies about other things too. Uh, but uh, anyway, that said, we're going to leave it at that. <laughs> that said, um, I, so I hired Tara, but I hadn't hired a team yet. And here's kind of where it started. For me, it was organic, right? The teams weren't really a thing back then, right? Abacuses, they were popular and stone tablets were popular, but, but you know, teams weren't really a thing yet. And so for me, it was organic, right? Oh, Brian's got a mute Facebook out there. We're getting Facebook on the background there, Brian. Um, but anyway, that being said, uh, I hired the next position I hired was actually a showing assistant. Um, so I hired Tara and then I hired my dad. And the reason I hired my dad is because Tara was doing all the buyer appointments. I was doing all the seller appointments and Tara was getting too busy. And so I hired my dad who was retired at the time, looking for something to do, wanted to just make a little extra income. So I had him as a showing assistant for Tara. He didn't do any closing or anything like that. Uh, and then her production started going through the roof. And she, so she was being a buyer's agent and working, uh, as our administrative assistant. Then we hired another admin, uh, and then we started to realize, okay, I think we're on to something here. And so we started hiring agents. And as we started to grow the agent side, things just took off. And it was just game over from there. So how much of your business? So we talk about, we hear a lot about your, um, I think you said it was 750 listings at one point that was um, active or pending mm -hmm. that you had at one time. Yeah. How much of that? was REO and how much of that was not? So only about half of my business was ever REO at any given time. And uh, a lot of people like to say, oh, well, it's different for him because it was all REO. No, it wasn't all REO. It's only about 50%. Now, that being said, I do believe that REO and short sales need to be a part of everyone's business. Uh, I think that these are things that help us balance out when we go into declining markets and we're going into a market shift now. And, uh, and so these are, these are parts of the business that help you kind of keep an even, uh, you know, an even cash flow throughout uh, rising and, and falling markets. Uh, that being said, the majority of our business was retail. And so retail business, I mean, there's a million ways to get it, but I would tell you this. Every single person watching this right now needs to be thinking, if I want to net a million a year, I need 25 lead sources. If I want to net a million dollars a year, I got to have 25 lead sources and they need to be diverse. I cannot have all my business coming from one place because if it's all coming from one place, or even if it's coming from three or four places, one of those places goes away, my income drops substantially. That's like having four buyer's agents on your team. That's a disaster waiting to happen because two or three of them get together and decide they're going to go start their own team. You're screwed, right? So that's why if you're going to grow a team, you want to get to 15, 20 agents as fast as you can without going broke. And then, you know, it takes some time for the income to catch up. So did that answer your question? Yeah, <laughs> it did. So um, those 25, you say 25, back then, was it 25? 
for me, no, the most I actually ever had on my team, and this is another hard lesson learned, was 16 at one time. Uh, and so I, and I shouldn't say that, that's not true. I had 18 was the most I ever got to, but generally I was bouncing back and forth between 12 and 18 buyer's agents. And here's why, because I didn't have the time to go really devote the resources, time, effort, and energy necessary to recruiting. If I had it to do over again, there's a couple of things I would do differently in my business. Number one, I'd treat agents in my market better. Uh, that's the single most important lesson that I got out of the mistakes I've made is be nice to everybody, take care of everybody, treat everybody like clients. And, and that was a hard lesson to learn and an expensive one. Uh, number two, don't freaking sue the state, right? That's another <laughs> Uh, was that number one or number was that number one? <laughs> number one. I don't know. They're both up there, right? Uh, but but I wouldn't do that, right? Don't see the same. Uh, and then number three, the, the third one would be I would have started recruiting a lot earlier and a lot heavier early on. Uh, there's no substitute for recruiting, and there's no question that the that I needed to have done a lot more of it. I had enough leads coming in. Think about the numbers here. I had six thousand three hundred fifty-two buyer leads coming, in, sign calls per month coming in. Sign calls. Do the math on that. That's enough sign calls for 159 buyer's agents. Think about that. There is no way on this planet I could have possibly hired enough buyer's agents. There's no way. And so, and now part of my challenge in hiring buyer's agents was that I pissed them all off, right? Because I was a <laughs> So if I hadn't done that, and if I had instead treated everybody with kindness, treated everybody with love, treated them like they were a client and made recruiting a higher priority. Oh my gosh, we would have hit 3000 transactions five years earlier. No question. How'd you get into REO? Uh, well, that's a very important question. Um, so first of all, everybody should be thinking about this question, right? How do I get into REO? Uh, there's not a lot of REO out there right now. So why would I even care about REO? Because it's another piece of what, what constitutes the balance in your business. So I got into REO late. I actually got into REO in late 2007 uh, when everybody said, oh, no, you know, it's, it's too late. It's already happening. And actually, I think back, it was, it was early 2008, I think, is when I actually got into REO. Um, but what happened was I started going to events that centered around REO and default and that sort of thing. And I got to know agents that were having success in REO. And so I didn't go right after the asset managers. Instead, what I did was I, I, was, I was careful, I was calculated, and I went through to these events and I, I'd go in the lobby of these events and I'd stand, I remember one of them was a, a, a Rio Mac event. Uh, it was at um, the Palm Desert JW Marriott. And in that lobby, they've got this mezzanine and I stood up on the mezzanine and I looked down the, in the lobby bars right there and that's where everybody would hang out and talk and stuff. Uh, I didn't even go to the classes. I literally just hung out there uh, in that bar, or I should say in the mezzanine overlooking the bar, and I would watch. I, didn't, I, there was, I wasn't talking to anybody at this point. I just literally watched that room, and I looked to see who were the people that everybody went up to. Not the people that were going up to everybody, but who were the people that everybody else was coming to to, to talk with, etc. And I figured out who they were. I made notes. I took pictures. I know this sounds creepy, but dude, I was, I was like game on with this. So I'm up there taking pictures from up above, figuring out who these people were. I figured out who it was and I went down and I got to know them one at a time. And I, and I didn't make any commitments at this point. I just reached out, got to know them, figured out who they were. And I figured out what they needed, what was important to them. 
Once I figured out what was important to them, then I could go get what was important to them through another conversation somewhere. And as I did that, I started bringing value to people that were really well connected. And guess what those really well connected people did? They got me connected. And before long, I was the most connected person in REO. And everybody, it's like, you have to talk to Mike Bjorkman. He'll tell you. One day, he was, the way Mike Bjorkman and I met, he was, uh, he was in a room and he had all these asset managers and agents kind of around him. And he was kind of holding court, if you will. And, you know, they were all interested in what he had to say. So I walk in the room and literally one by one, all of the people that were talking to him and the people that were in the other parts of the room would start migrating over to me. And before you know it, I had this big group of people and he was standing there with, with Maggie, uh, who was a gal that worked with me. And he looks at Maggie and he says, what just happened? Who is this guy? Like, well, he just totally stole my mojo. What just happened here? And it was not because I was anything special. It was because I sought out the best connected people and I sought to bring them value before getting any value from them. And that's how I got into let, let me kind of point out something because it's interesting. You know, and I say that you know, it's, it's defining sales because a lot of people, you know, sales is getting someone to do what they want so I can make more money. What, however you define sales. To me, sales is two people learning to communicate in a way that we can both win. And that that's what sales is about for me, because, again, if I win and the other side doesn't win, that's not that's not that's not a win for me, because ultimately, at best, that's a short term relationship that I can't I have no leverage over. But, you know, I hear people all the time and I if I put 100 agents in the room, I bet you, you know, they, they couldn't hear each other's answer. And you say you make a phone call or you you know, talk to somebody, what's the number one goal? I want to say that 98% of those people will say the number one goal is to make an appointment. And, and by the way, that is a great goal. There's nothing wrong with that. However, here's what I heard as you told that story. Step one for you was connect and build rapport. Absolutely. And, and you know, that's the thing. Michael didn't say, hey, I found this really neat trick and then I bribed him and I did this and I did this. He said, I built rapport with people. And then I found out what their needs were mm-hmm. and I found a way to fill their needs. Oh, and then by the way, I got a whole bunch of business. So, you know, you can take that same microcosm and do that the same way. You know, an agent's interviewing for your team. Step one, build rapport with them, you know, and, and you know, to your point earlier, you, you didn't have a lot of rapport with some of the agents in your market <laughs> or, or maybe yeah, it's right. a very negative rapport. I mean, it depends yeah. on how you define rapport, but yeah. you know, and you know, that's an amazing thing that you say, because here's one of the things that I see people doing all the time, being short-sighted. In other words, you know, well, this agent called me and he was a jerk and I put him in his place. Well, congratulations, you just built an enemy. And now when you go build the team, that's right. you know what? Maybe that guy had a bad day and he would have been an amazing team member, but there's no way on God's green earth he's showing your team. Well, so, and not only that, but he's going to chase other people away. Right. You know, Michael, he's a jerk. Every time I talk to him, he yells at me, tells me why I'm wrong, blah, 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 whatever it is. You know, I tell people all the time, when I hang up the phone, you may not want to be in the room because all the things I just didn't say to this person may come out of my mouth. But the truth of the matter is I don't treat people like crap. I don't tell them they're wrong. And, you know, and I hear that you've learned that lesson. That's an amazing thing. Sale, you cannot convince or influence anyone 
And if you don't hear anything else, anyone until you build rapport with them. And, and you know, I congratulate you for you understanding that as, as a much younger man than you, than we both are today. So uh, sometimes, sometimes we learn that because we're intelligent and we learn it, you know, through normal learning. Sometimes people have to be a little bit like me where we're a little bit more thick headed and we have to learn it because somebody kicks us in the, you know, in the place where it really hurts a lot <laughs> and I'm going to learn it. And I mean, that's really, that's what happened to me. Right? I would love to say that it was me, you know, being, you know, interested in learning at that moment in time. I was not interested in learning. I thought I knew it all at that point in my life. I had no interest in learning from anybody, but you know what? Sometimes God knows better. And sometimes God says, no, nah, you're going to learn this lesson. Uh, so, can, can I ask you a question? You can say no to this. Do you <laughs> mind if we, we share the story about Austin that we talked about a couple days ago and, and Snapchat? <laughs> yeah let's do it this is so great. Uh, i'm gonna set i'm gonna set this up and, and, and here's why i'm gonna set this up this way it, to me this is about why and, and you know austin and, and you guys probably all know austin if you follow club wealth at all is 16 now is that is that correct 16 years old yeah and, and michael created a why for you know austin has a huge a huge why and i don't think michael realized how big that why was but uh and he got out of his comfort zone. And I think it's a great story to show people that if a 16 year old can get outside of their comfort zone, if their why is big enough. And, you know, I, I'd love for you to share that story. And I love Austin. Austin, if you're watching, sorry, bud, but, uh, <laughs> but we're about to talk about you. Well, let's start with this. First of all, you got to understand that Austin is the number one sales guy at Club Wealth and has been since he was 14 years old. And we have a lot of adults working in sales for us. Uh, and I say this, and he gets the same leads everybody else gets. He gets no special treatment. If anything, I'm a lot harder on Austin than I am on me. You are a lot harder on Austin. Oh yeah. Oh, I I whip that kid. <laughs> not fit, not literally, but you know, but figuratively, I whip that kid like crazy. And and I'll tell you why because I know he's cap- what he's capable of, right? I, and 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 he thrives on that. And uh, you know, but then I of course show afterwards you know, an increase of love. But that being said, um, Austin is not. I mean, he's kind of interested in girls. But he's he's really not like a typical kid. And I'm not saying he's interested in boys. I don't mean that either. But I mean, what I'm saying is he just, he's just got other things that are important to him. Like, you know, fishing. Fortnite. And, yeah, Fortnite, fishing, you know, making money. You know, those are way more important to him than girls at this point in his life. And, uh, you know, I was getting to worry a little bit. I'm like, man, this kid's got to get out there and get some dating going on. And, and so... I made, and Tara's going to kill me for sharing this, dude. I'm telling you, she's... Sorry, Tara, my fault. <laughs> yes, she's totally going to kill me for this. So, Brian, it is totally your fault. Um, that being said, Austin has this girl that was dating a friend of his for a while, and he really likes this girl, real cute kid, nice girl. And Austin, I, he's been begging me for a long time to get Snapchat. And, you know, here's the Like, I didn't want him to have Snapchat because I just, I, I don't see any real, you know, benefit out of having Snapchat. <laughs> wait, wait, Tara says, don't you dare. <laughs> Before we continue, I want you to understand your wife has spoken. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll save this. Austin did okay. something. 100% outside of his comfort zone. He's a 16-year-old kid, and he broke outside of his comfort zone to do something because his why was big enough. Because he wanted this so bad that he went completely outside of who he is. And, and, and I think that 
you know, Michael can probably tell story after story after story about how he has personally gone outside of his comfort zone. And again, I'm not going to try and get Michael or Austin or get Tara mad at me. It's so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're down the road. Let's go ahead and finish the story. I'm okay. Oh, boy. I, 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 listen, I, right, I let you off the hook. No success in the world. <laughs> situations like this, I ask the most important question in marriage, right? And that's, is this a divorceable issue? And the answer to this one is probably not. So we're going to find out. Um, so, <laughs> Sorry, Tara. So anyway, so I, I told Austin, because I didn't think he had a chance in heck at this girl giving him the time of day, right? I just thought, this gal's way out of his league. There's no way. He's too shy. She's too whatever she is. And there's just no way this is going to happen. And so I bet him, I said, and, and obviously I should have checked with my beautiful and amazing wife first, uh, which clearly I didn't uh, had a guy moment in weakness. And I told him, I said, so I'll bet you Snapchat. I'll, you know, if you, if you can get her to kiss you, I'll, get, I'll let you have Snapchat. And I kid you not, that night, that <laughs> night, he gets this like, I mean, this would be like, like, me as a single man getting like Heidi Klum to kiss me. Like, it's just not going to happen, right? Like, it's not even possible. And this freaking kid, I forgot that he can sell anything. And he goes out and he freaking gets her to kiss him. And I'm just like, whatever. All right. Never bet with that kid about a girl ever again. Um, so the lesson learned is... a 16-year-old about a girl at all. Well, and he was scared to death of it. And what's really interesting is he had no interest in this whole thing, right? All he wanted was Snapchat. And all his friends are like, dude, like you just got to kiss one of the hottest girls in school. What is your problem? Austin like, is the man. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, no, I got Snapchat. <laughs> Who is this kid? <laughs> so, so the lesson there for me is you create a big enough lever and you can get, you can move the world, you know, and that's really what Austin did. He wanted this more than anything, which seems a little silly. Maybe we need to refocus his focus, but <laughs> nonetheless, it's an amazing story of someone who's not even interested in something, but they, over here, I want this. And, and again, I, I apologize if anyone's embarrassed by the story, but I'm proud of him and I'm proud of the fact that he is just an amazing kid, an amazing person who is willing to do whatever it takes. And well, the, the, the part that there's one other part to that, Brian, is that if you've ever heard Austin ask Michael about Snapchat, the instant response is always no. It's always no. It's always no. It's always no. And yeah. he got an opportunity. His dad didn't say no right away. He said, I'll let you do it if. And so he got his foot in the door and then Austin just kicked it open. <laughs> That's all. And he did. And a lot yeah, and a lot of us don't do that. A lot of us miss so many different opportunities that come our way, all because we're scared for us to, when we get our foot in the door, we're scared to kick the door open. And that's what a 16-year-old did. Yes, could have been hormones. No, it was no, Snapchat. Not, that nothing he to do wanted with that. Snapchat. Yeah, he didn't He's care been about asking it. for Snapchat for as long as I've known you. <laughs> and Dude, every time I hear him terrified say terrified to kiss this girl. <laughs> terrified. Okay? Seriously, it had nothing to do with the kiss. He was literally terrified of this moment. Had no clue what he was doing for, yeah, I mean, period. Like, literally, no clue what he was doing. And he figured out. But here's the thing, and I want you guys to think about this in your own lives or on your teams, right? 
Think about this, because Napoleon said it's amazing what a man will do for a piece of ribbon. John Schwarzkopf later, actually, I'm sorry, Patton later quoted him as saying that. Uh, and it's true, right? These guys will go to war and get shot up for a piece of ribbon. And you guys, you got to think about what really motivates people. Very few people are motivated by hope for gain. Very few people on this planet are motivated by, I want to make more money. We all think that's what it is. We all would like to believe that's what it is, but that's usually not the case. Which, by the way, if you don't believe me, see if when you give someone a raise on your team, if you get more work out of them. You don't. Trust me. You don't. You just pay more money. And that's why I'm saying it's it's not about the hope for gain. Most people are afraid of fear of loss more than they are for hope for gain. But what you have to find is that lever, like Brian said. You've got to find that thing that is most important to that person, and that takes a lot of work. You have to dig deep into their why. It's usually something in their childhood, like the soccer team for me, right? I didn't get to play soccer because my parents couldn't afford the cleats. I've been bitter about that my whole life, and that's a big part of the reason why I've gone out and gone the extra mile to be successful because I don't want my kids to have to go through that. You know, we, I've, I've gone through this exercise with people oftentimes where we dig deep into their why. A lot of times it has to do with child abuse as a kid, or they didn't get enough attention from mom and dad, or whatever it was. They didn't have the things they wanted when they grew up. They want to make sure their kids have a better life. Whatever that lever is, you have to find that lever and you have to push on it to help them have the success that they want and deserve to have. But you got to be authentic with it. Don't do the fake push because everyone oh, yeah. can smell it a mile away. Some people will do the fake will do the fake one and they're not authentic with it. So, okay. I got another question for you there. Yes. All right. So at uh, Listing Agent Bootcamp, at last year's Business Strategy Mastermind, which we have another one coming up here in just about two months. I think we've got two months until we're on a countdown now. So if you're not going to be in Anaheim, I don't know what's wrong with you. Be there, be square. <laughs> but so I got awesome. a question for you. You say... In both of those, I've heard you say, and, and all of us, all 400 of us that have been in the room, we've heard you say this before, is that it will work in your market. Why do you believe that what you are saying and what you are teaching and coaching and training everyone on and consulting with everyone with will work in their market? Why do you believe that? Let's start There's with so many different markets, Michael. People. Remember this. There's so many different markets. Oh there's, my gosh. There's so many different markets. I'll tell you right now, you drop me, Brian, Sheree, or any number of rock stars at Club Wealth into any market in this country, and we're going to be the number one agent in that country inside of 12 months. Mark my words. It just it blows me away that people use that won't work in my market as an excuse for poor performance, and that's all it is. It's an excuse to perform poorly. You know what? At the end of the day, it will work in your market. I mean, look at Josh Solinger, right? Here's a perfect example. Josh Solinger's in Ladera Ranch, California, high-end market, right? And you know, we, we tell him, hey, you need to go do massive open houses. Everybody else across the country in these high-end markets constantly loves to say, oh, I don't want to do massive open houses. That won't work in my market because I work luxury. Well, good <laughs> for you. you know what? That's awesome. So you're broke just like the agents that don't do a lot of anything else, right? So I, I quit with the excuses. And so Josh says, you know what? I'm going to trust Michael. I'm going to believe the system. I'm going to work the system. And he did. And he went out and last year he sold, and I'm sorry, this year, this year he sold, I want to say it was eight homes. And that doesn't sound like a lot to you, but wait for the punchline. He sold eight homes from open houses this year alone. And he's got a bunch of people in the pipeline, a result of them. 
average sales price, a million and a half. Don't tell me it won't work in your market. There's a lot of things like that. Now, are there certain things we need to adjust from market to market? Sure, absolutely. We massage things, we change things, we, we customize them to fit different markets. But the reality is the vast majority of things we teach work in the vast majority of the markets out there. And if you think yours is different, you better get a coach with Club Wealth because that's the only thing that's going to save you from dying on the vine in your market because all you're doing right now is is mentally screwing yourself into believing that it won't work in your market. Sorry, is that is that calm enough? I get a little passionate about this one. It's like, don't tell me it won't work in your market. Then you know what? Then prove me wrong. Go to some market where you can, where you think it will work or let me come to your market and I'll show you it'll work. But then you're going to be paying me. I think that the agents who always say it's not going to work in my market, it's not going to work in my market are the ones who are not going to be around when the market shifts because they're not used to making adjustments. So will it work the same exact way? No, but there's pieces of this that you take and you still just go do it. Go do it. Make the shift. You try it this way. Okay, that didn't quite work. So the let me look at how this um how everything came about. Okay, I need to make a couple of little changes here. Make those changes and then go do it and do it better. That's the thing. People just don't understand that when shifts happen, you make adjustments. Just make Uh, the adjustment when the shift happens and keep on going. I'll give you a perfect example, and I won't mention her name because we've constantly been this throughout my career. But there was a woman in my market that, uh, when I was selling real estate, would criticize me for doing short sales and would say, why would you do short sales? That doesn't make any sense. Those are waste of time. It's all this work for not a lot of money, blah, 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 blah. Guess who got her house foreclosed on uh, in the next 12 months, right? And oh, and by the way, it was a $4 million house. Sorry, right? But the fact of the matter is you've got to learn the market. And I feel bad for it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be callous or insensitive. I'm just frustrated because the people that like to poke fun at people that are having success are the very people that are so insecure they can't get out of their comfort zone and learn something new. Be, be secure in yourself. Have some self-confidence. Try something new today. Do something that scares you today. Because if it doesn't scare you, guess what? You're probably not growing. And if you're not growing, everybody else around you is and you're going backwards. Let me tell you what I tell my team about short sales. So I think we put we put three short sales in the contract this weekend where there's not a whole lot of short sales out there. And when it's the three separate agents put three separate short sales under contract this weekend. And uh, when they first came to our team, they would not even show them. I'm not going to show them. It's a short sale. It takes too long to close. Well, since then, of course, they've kind of adopted what I've said in reference to short sales. And I always say I love short sales in June. June is the perfect month for short sales for me. You know why? Because it's a December paycheck. That's right. (laughs) Christmas time, baby. I love June short sales. Agents these days don't believe in pipelines. They don't see it. They only go for what's right there, that low-hanging fruit. They miss the follow-up. They don't continue to do it. You've said it countless of times that fortunes is in the follow-up, you know, and a lot of agents don't do that. I think back to 2000 when I was back doing mortgages, I had, even though I had to have paper folders, I have paper folders in my drawer with each month that was there. And when I was supposed to call, this is how I organized everything. And I stayed on top of it. I started with a pipeline, always believed in a pipeline. So please don't drop the ball when it comes down to that. 
speaking of, we only got a couple more minutes left, but speaking of follow-ups, Michael, what do you think is the ideal follow-up plan? You've been through the, the market adjustment. We've heard so many different things. What do you think is an ideal follow-up plan? Uh, well, I believe in being over-aggressive about follow-up because here's the reality. The reality is most agents are going to screw up follow-up anyway. And if you're over-aggressive, what's the worst thing that can happen? They're going to say no. Well, if you don't follow up, it's a no anyway, right? I mean, you're not going to get the business. You might as well follow. I'd rather follow up crappy than, you know, but do too much of it than, than be perfect to follow up and only do it once. Uh, likewise, I'd rather have five of my people on my team following up with the same person than nobody following up with them. Now, is it ideal to have five people on my team following up with the same person? No, that's not ideal. But it beats the alternative of they don't get any follow-up. Uh, and so for me, I've always believed in the three, 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 right? It's three times a day for the first three days, three times a week for the next three weeks, three times a month for the next three months. Now, are there more sophisticated follow-up programs and regimens that, that make more sense than that? Sure. But it's easy to remember, and it's simple, and it's something that most you know that just about anybody can do. And so start with that. And and when you've done that, and you got good at that, then we'll teach you some more sophisticated stuff. But right now, just do that. Awesome. <laughs> so I think Brian's like, yeah, just do that. Just do something, right? Well, and that's really what it comes down to. People are always looking for the perfect plan. You know, they're looking for the perfect CRM and the perfect this and the perfect that. And here's the thing. Can you, is there some places in your business, whether you're a single agent or a team that you can do better? I'm hundred percent sure of that I don't even know who you are, but I'm hundred percent sure there's something you can improve, but the majority of people fail because they don't have a plan, not because they didn't have the best plan or the perfect plan. They just didn't have a plan. They went out there and went, woo, and oh crap, it didn't work and none of this stuff works. So, you know, do I use 333? No, but I'm thrilled that it's simple. And the truth of the matter is if everybody on my team used 333 every single day, we would do better than we're doing now. Yep. It, not, it's the execution of the plan. You know, um, what we do, honestly, it's very hard. Let me say that. It, but Ultimately, it's extremely simple. There's no, you know, we're not splitting the atom out there, guys. We're calling people, we're setting appointments, we're showing houses, we're going and listing appointments, writing contracts. It's simple. There's not, you know, sometimes, you know, Michael and I talk about this a lot, but, you know, when we get to tier three, tier four, tier five, been coaching these people for a while, I don't have anything specifically to teach them outside of mindset and, and solving problems because the reality is, you know, information is not what's holding us up, by the way, in, in 2018. There's more information available in 2018 than there's ever been in the entire world. And that is not what's stopping you. It's that application. And, and if you don't want to learn anything else from Michael, learn this. He went out and did. And he didn't always do it right, by the way. And he'll tell you that. I'm not trying to say, but he did. And, you know, the person who goes out and does will always be outdo the person who has the perfect plan every single time. You know, I would suggest that every single person on this call, if you only get one thing out of this call, and we do need to wrap up, we got to get on another call, our coach's call. Um, but if you only get one thing out of this call, get this, air in favor of action. When I was 18 years old, I was still in high school. I was the number one listing agent in my office, not because I had the best plan. I had no plan. You know, I had zero plan. I was 18 years old. I didn't know my head from a hole in the ground. But you know what? What I did was I got out there and I worked my freaking butt off. That's what I did. I worked a lot harder than every other agent in that office, and that's why I was successful. So quit freaking talking about it and go do something. 
You want to be successful? You want to sell some houses? Pick up the freaking phone. Talk to somebody. You want to go? You want to make more money this year? Knock on a freaking door. Recruit somebody to your team. Take some kind of massive action. It doesn't matter what it is. Just freaking do something besides being an eternal learner. We'll teach you all the stuff you need to know. And yes, we give you great content. We want you to learn from us. We want you to go to the podcast, right? Go to clubbuilding.com forward slash TV. Download the podcast. Listen to it when you're on airplanes and that sort of thing or when you're working out. But but when you have time where you're not, every minute possible, you need to be recruiting or prospecting for business or somehow growing your business and not just sitting around hoping that you're going to learn some magic pill or automate something in some way that all of a sudden you're going to make a bunch of money and you're going to be able to sit and play freaking Fortnite all day and make money. That Unless your name's Ninja, that's not going to happen. All right. So that being said. I don't know what that is. <laughs> he's like a gamer on Facebook. He makes $500,000 a year playing Fortnite. He's the only person on the planet that does that. So that being said, you guys, seriously, I appreciate you guys uh, interviewing me today. This was awesome. Uh, it was fun for me, and I hope that you guys got something out of it. Hopefully somebody on the call got something out of it. Uh, if you think this was valuable, I'd love it if you type into your screen, yeah, this was great, more Michael or more whatever. Uh, you know, you're probably saying to yourself, there's no way I'm typing that in. All right, that being said, we got to run. Don't forget to uh, check out our sponsor, and thank you to wise hire it's uh www.wisehire.com forward slash club wealth uh wisehire.com forward slash club wealth appreciate those guys uh making this happen for us and uh, we love them we use them all the time and uh that said we're going to jump onto the coaches call remember inside each one of you there really truly is a world-class beast right here right just dying to get out but you gotta choose to let that beast out you got to make some kind of a decision to do something world-class today. So go do it. Have a great day, everybody.